Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. I am Greg Littmer. I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ, and I'd like to talk to you today about Noah, an extraordinary individual who accomplished an extraordinary feat. We'll begin by turning to the book of Hebrews, specifically chapter 11, sometimes referred to as the great hall of fame of faith, and we'll begin by reading verses 6 and 7. There the Bible says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is by faith. Of all of the individuals in the Bible, certainly Noah is one of the best known. Even among those who have very little concern for things of a religious nature, even among those who cling to other religions that do not recognize the scriptures, the account of Noah and the ark is known. Let's go to Genesis chapter 6 and look at the instructions that Noah received from God. Beginning with verse 13 we read, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cupids, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. A window thou shalt make to the ark, and in a cupid thou shalt finish it above, and the door of the ark thou shalt set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. We are talking here about a massive undertaking. That was different from anything that had been accomplished before this time. The ark was to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Now, if we assume an 18-inch cubit, which is about right, the ark would have been 450 by 75 by 45 feet. The capacity of the ark would have been 13,960 tons. Consider something, my friends. It was not until the year 1884 that a ship of similar capacity would be built again. It is also important to note that this ark was probably 120 years in the making. After the completion of the ark, there was still an incredible task to be accomplished. Looking at verses 19 through 22 of chapter 6, and also verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7, we find the following. 
and of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark, to keep them alive with thee, and they shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee, to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and his female, to keep seed alive upon the face of the earth, for yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the tree, the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. With the ark completed, and the entering into it imminent, Noah was still faced with the task of loading all the necessary supplies his family, and all of the animals into its interior. He had a week to accomplish this work. While I firmly believe that God was with him and assisted him in a miraculous way, actually causing the animals to come to Noah, I think we would all agree that it was still a tremendous endeavor. Food of all kind had to be brought on board, not only for his family, but for all of the animals. Things had to be properly stored and the animals properly placed. All of this had to be done in anticipation of an event the likes of which had never before been seen or heard. This was a tremendous amount of work, evidencing a tremendous amount of faith on the part of Noah. Now I began today by saying I wanted to talk to you about the extraordinary man who accomplished an extraordinary feat and while I marvel at the physical work that Noah accomplished, that is not the feat to which I was referring. Let's go back to Genesis 6 and pick up reading in verse 5, continuing on down through verse 9. It tells us, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. The world of Noah's day was described by the Holy Spirit in a shockingly blunt manner. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In addition to the outward manifestations of wickedness that the people of Noah's world engaged in, God saw the very nature of their thoughts. They placed no restraint upon themselves and gave themselves wholly over to wickedness 
and thoughts devising more ways to demonstrate their depravity. Remember that Jesus said it is from within, out of the heart of men, that evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, and so on come forth. He said all these evil things come from within and defile the man. In Noah's day, all that was within was wicked. Now I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but the very fact that man is still here, the very fact that we are alive and walking and talking and living on this earth, depended in a very large way upon the personal character of Noah and upon God looking at people individually. He stood his ground and remained uninfluenced and unchanged by the attitude and conduct of all men to the contrary. All the world, and I mean all the world, said he was wrong in holding fast to his piety. If ever there was a man who could rightfully say everyone is doing it, Noah was that man. But let me tell you something. Noah knew he was right and everybody else was wrong. How was he described? Noah is called a just man or a righteous man. He is called someone who was perfect in his generations or perfect among his contemporaries. These two terms describe an extraordinary man. To be righteous involves conforming to a standard, and Noah did. He conformed to the divine standard, whatever it was at that time, and because he did, he received God's approval. It does not mean that Noah was perfect in the sense of never having done anything wrong. After the flood, that will clearly be shown to be true. But it means that those things that God sought in man were present in Noah. His life measured up to God's standard. The accompanying word used to describe him is perfect or complete. The idea is that Noah lived a well-rounded life, that there was no essential quality missing. But again, that doesn't mean that he was morally perfect, never falling short. But when we take both of these terms together, we have described for us a life of true faith and sincere conviction, a life that stood out from all of his contemporaries who lacked those qualities. To summarize it, Noah walked with God. That statement reminds me of Amos 3 and verse 3, which says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? That is a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Literally, Noah walked to and fro with God. What enabled Noah to live such a life? He had a personal communion with God. It describes a closeness hard to be put into words. It is astounding that one man would stand so alone among his contemporaries, that one man would strive for righteousness in a world so completely characterized by corruption, but Noah did. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 tells us something else about Noah. That passage says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the, the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah evidently sought to lead his contemporaries down the same path of righteousness that he was walking. He taught God's standard. Can you imagine during the 120 years of the ark's construction, 
preparing for an event the likes of which it had never been seen before. Can you imagine the ridicule that this righteous preacher endured? But he sought to save others. This was an extraordinary man. We are getting closer to the feat he accomplished that I really want to talk about. We go back now to Genesis chapter 6 and this time read verse 10. It tells us that Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The very same statement is made in chapter 5 verse 32, but in chapter 5 verse 32 the statement was made to round out the genealogy. Here in Genesis 6 and verse 10, following immediately the statement about Noah's piety, it certainly seems to indicate that Noah had passed his piety along to his sons, that they were deeply influenced by their father's example, and that they shared his character. I'd like you to look at three verses with me. In Genesis 6:18, we read, But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. In chapter 7 and verse 13 we find, In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. In chapter 8 and verse 16, After the flood when the judgment had been rendered and the world washed clean by the waters of its corruption and defilement, God said, Go forth of the ark thou and thy wife and thy son and thy son's wives with thee. Now we have gotten to the extraordinary feat that I want to talk about. It was found in the passage with which we began this particular episode. Noah saved his house. In other words, Noah saved his family. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20 we read, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Those eight souls were Noah and his family. In a world full of corruption, with all the possible negative influence of association with those of every imagination of their hearts were only evil continually, with him standing alone and obviously receiving the ridicule and abuse that comes from such conviction and courage, Noah saved his family. In the third epistle of John, verse 4, John makes a statement that I know has reference to those who were his children in the faith, but oh, it is so applicable to the children of the flesh of well. John wrote, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I have expressed to my children numerous times in their lives that I don't really care what they end up doing as far as an occupation is concerned as long as it is honest and upright and they are happy. I don't really care if they are a big success as the world views being a success. But the one thing that is most important to me is to always know that my children walk in truth. And that is not so easy as it may seem. It takes a tremendous amount of work, 24 hours a day, because our children see us as we really are. They know what is truly important to us. They know if we just talk the talk or if we really walk the walk, like Paul exhorted us to in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, when he wrote, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord 
beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. I have done so many funerals over the years where I have talked to the brother or sister who died prior to their death, and they have expressed to me that their greatest disappointment as they approached the judgment was that their children were not faithful. I can't tell you how many times I have been told at the funeral, preach to my children. I can't tell you how many times sons and daughters have broken the heart of their dead mother or father by their unfaithfulness, and yet they come to the funeral and cry and weep and then continue to forsake the Lord. It is quite a feat to have a hand in saving your family. I believe that God recognizes that this is not something that happens automatically or by accident. Thus, under the old law, God emphasized the need to teach children. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, we hear the following. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. God's point was that his way must be taught all the time, and not only in word, but in deed as well. In 1 Samuel we read of Eli, a man who judged Israel for 40 years and was a priest of God. He was obviously a man of spiritual inclination, a man who sought to serve the Lord. In his position, one would think that it would be a natural thing for his children to be faithful. But that was not the case. Eli spent his time ministering to everyone else and neglected to save his family. In 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 12, we find that the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, we read, And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel, at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I will bring forth against Eli all things that I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. Our families will not be saved automatically. Truly, it is a marvelous feat to have a hand in saving them. In the New Testament, the obligation is further emphasized. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, Paul wrote, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I don't think that our world today is so much different than it was in the times of Noah, although there certainly are more than eight righteous people alive today. But the temptations are there and seemingly growing all the time. We live in a world today where good is called bad and bad is called good, where God's standard of morality is belittled and dismissed. Our families face tremendous obstacles in the struggles to live uprightly. I can't think of a better place to start than in the home. Let us strive with all of our hearts to save our families, as did righteous Noah. Words to think about. Thanks for listening.